Hello, and welcome to the Lake Forest Church Huntersville Sermon Podcast. We are a community of skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Christ. To learn more about who we are as a church and how you can get connected, visit lakeforest.org. Well, uh, hello, friends. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm lead pastor here, if we haven't met yet. This is the last week of our series on uh, the seven deadly sins called Vices and Virtues. Uh, It's been interesting. Uh, This has not been a series where people are like, hey, Mike, can we do this series twice as long or do it again soon? Because I love you preaching about sin. Um, uh, In fact, if you notice, like half the church has left. Uh, because we've been preaching on, on sin. No, actually, it's spring break Sunday, uh, and, and Tiger Woods is tied for the lead. So um, uh, I'm expecting all the golfers at the 5 o'clock service since the tee times were moved up. Uh, I am looking forward to the end of the This is the time in the service, if you're new here, by the way, when we, we, we learn a little bit about God's Word in the Bible. We believe that the Bible, the, the, the scriptures in the, Old, the Hebrew and the New Testaments, we believe that they are somehow God's infallible word to all that matters most in life, love, and destiny. And if you're coming to believe that, we welcome you to learn from the scriptures together. We also learn from it uh, on our own. We're learning how to study it for ourselves and in groups. And, uh, and uh, last week's, our penultimate sin was sloth. And I had my pet sloth, and, and you guys always crack me up. Y'all interact with me a lot throughout the week. Um, and another friend here at Lake Forest, Katie, get, found another sloth for me, a pet sloth. Uh, and they're so cute. I, I thought this one was cute enough that I wanted to share it with you. And not only is he an adorable little pet stuffed sloth, it's an Easter sloth, just like the one I had last week. Like, how is that a thing? Can somebody tell me who invented putting bunny ears on sloths? Because this is two of them in one week that I have been given. I don't understand it. But I know that our Easter sloth is saying, I'm about to text my one more per- sloth who's given up on church but not on God to invite him to worship uh, on Easter with me. And, and I hope you are. Uh, in fact, I just texted one of my friends. Uh, I'm, I, my practice this today is I'm going to text one of uh, each of my three friends I'm inviting to worship with us on Easter after each of the worship services. Because um, I love these guys, and I know they could use more of the love of God in their life. Uh, so that's why I'm doing that. Okay, goodbye, sloth. Uh, today's sin is envy. Here's what envy is. You're out fishing on Lake Norman. This guy pulls up with that $40,000 fishing boat. You know it because you've priced it out before. All the bells and whistles. And dude, fish are practically jumping into his boat. He's sitting there soaking up rays. He has a cold drink, a cool tan, listening to to Super Duper Satellite Radio. He's got cable TV on a big screen up in there. And there you are with your bamboo fishing pole reeling up that four-inch sunfish. And he's reeling in a five-pound walleye. And you're staring so much, you drift into his boat. Envy is that, that emotion when you're thinking, that guy's flaunting his wealth. You know what? I bet he's not a Christian. If he is, I bet he doesn't tithe. There he sits in that boat, stealing from God, sitting on money, stolen from God, buying that expensive boat. I bet that guy's a bad husband, an absent father. I bet his wife's home cussing him right now because he never spends time with them. And here he is. And you know what? I don't, uh, I, with your bamboo pole, I don't, uh, I don't really get too upset and question God about the starving children in Africa. But man, God, 
the fact that this dude has a bigger boat than me, it's tempting my faith. Because Lord, I know I deserve a bigger, awesomer boat than him because of who I am compared to that guy. That is what envy sounds like inside of our head. That's envy. I've just made that person my rival. And we're all envious about different things. I don't know what your gig is that stirs up envy for you. For me, it's not actually a boat. That was a fictitious situation for me. But envy is a temptation for, for me personally. Just go ahead. I'll just go ahead and tell you. I don't mind telling you. When I encounter awesome pastors who have amazing and huge notable ministries, that's like a mic issue. So like when you come up to me and you're like, dude, I was in this other city and I went to this famous church. It was so amazing. You know what I'm saying to you? I'm saying, hey, that's cool. That's awesome. Behind my eyeballs, you know what I'm thinking? I don't want to hear that right now. I, just, I think I just preached a bad sermon and here I am hearing about the success of someone else. Uh, that that kind of messes with me. And so in fact, if you want to be kind to your pastor and help me not be tempted to envy, it'd be great if, if when you see me after a worship service or before, you're like, hey Mike, I just went to this really no, notable church and man, it sucked wind compared to Lake Forest. If you would just tell a little white lie, I, I will put in a good word for you to be forgiven for that sin, that would really hook up your pastor. <laughs> Here's a true story. A pastor buddy of mine that I was once very close to, spent a lot of time with, um, all of a sudden he didn't return my emails or texts for a period of several years. The next time we met up wasn't that long ago. And he said, uh, Mike, got to be honest, our church has stayed the same small size for years and years. And I couldn't handle it emotionally to be your friend and hear about how things are going at Lake Forest. That, that hurt my heart for him, and I was floored by his honesty. Envy is a constant temptation for most of us. Every one of us knows what it's like to create rivals or emotional enemies in our heart. And today, God has scheduled us. Uh, to. Th this is the time for our triple envy bypass surgery out of each of our hearts is what I pray even as we conclude our worship with communion and we feast on the grace of Jesus who is enough for all of our needs, including to excise out the heart problem of envy and replace it with a heart of love. Uh, now, to see if any of these apply to you. If you've ever envied somebody's car, house, physique, marriage, children, grandchildren, business, boat, salary, physical figure, education, temperament, athletic ability, character quality, intelligence, their spiritual gift, or the amount of hair on their head, raise your hand if you've ever envied anybody for any of that stuff. Let's just be sure who's in the room. If anybody besides me, this word of God is for. Okay, I'm just making sure. Welcome to Club Envy. What a great club to be a member of. And, and, and although I joke and make fun of stuff all the time, because I can't help it, that's just me, um, uh, this is a serious sin. Envy makes people, frankly, do evil and heinous things. And the evil one uses envy and tempts us to envy to get us to walk away from God and his people, the church. Envy keeps our current and potential relationships from growing. Envy judges other people's motives. Envy hurts innocent people. Envy reveals the condition of our hearts that I have fixated on thinking, God owes me a different life. Certainly a better life than that one. 
Envy is sinful and has serious consequences. Envy leads to anxiety. Envy diminishes the enjoyment of life. Envy breaks the 10th commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his ox or donkey, his big honking boat, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's the 10th commandment. Because the bottom line is this, envy and joy cannot exist in the same heart. Envy and peace cannot coexist in the same heart. Therefore, God's command, as all of his commands, principles, and precepts are, his command to not envy or covet is for our good. Yes, it offends his character of love. But God knows envy and happiness cannot be in the same room together or in the same soul. He wants the best for you. He wants the best for me. And so we want to be people who set aside envy and walk in newness of life. And so today, I just hope we are able to name a bit more skillfully, you and I, the temptation of envy. Uh, I want us to, frankly, come to hate envy because what it can and does do in our lives and among people. And I want us to turn to God for his love in place of envy. In fact, we're at the end of, the, of worship, we're going to come to the communion table and we're going to rehearse the great exchange all over again. When God exchanges his very righteousness through Jesus' atoning sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he exchanges his righteousness in place of forgiving and blowing away our sin, including the sin of envy. And thus we want to be those who do not walk back in to that old way of life. We want to walk in the new life of Jesus and his love. Well, envy in the part of God's word we're going to be in today, if you want to follow in your own Bible, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18. Fascinating account of envy. And it's the situation in King Saul's life. King Saul is the king of ancient Israel. He's a powerful man when we get to 1 Samuel 18. He commands the armies of the nation of ancient Israel. He has great wealth. This is roughly the year 1000 BC. He has luxury and wealth and ease that, that common people could only dream of in that day. But Saul is an unhappy man. He is an anxious man in spite of all he has going for him, and it's specifically because of envy. Saul is an example of where envy goes if it's unchecked, unexamined in our life, how much it can take from us. So let's learn from his story. When we get to 1 Samuel 18, Saul has just promoted a teenaged, uh, an older teenaged boy. Some of you are older teenagers. Has, he's just promoted this older teenage boy from outside the army into a position of lieutenant or colonel, maybe even general. Why? Because this teenage boy who was a shepherd boy from the hick town of Bethlehem had shown up in the big moment of Israel and in hand-to-hand -hand combat defeated Goliath, who was the champion of their rival army, the Philistines, the sea people who lived on the Mediterranean coast, whereas the Israelites lived in the mountains. Jerusalem is a mountainous capital. And David had defeated Goliath, uh, is his name, David, uh, and Saul promoted him into the army. And verse 2 of 1 Samuel 18 says, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Saul's like a, a, a friend of mine who I respect his leadership. One of his core values is always having a head on a swivel. 
And what he means is he's always looking for young talent to promote and empower. I thought that was really awesome. Well, Saul's got a head on a swivel. He's like, there's some young talent. I want you in the army. Verse five, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful, turns out he is talented, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So whatever David's given, he success, like evidently, evidently he was made for this job in the military. And as the years go by, David's reputation as a military leader and a man of integrity grows by leaps and bounds. And look, it even pleases the troops and the officers that David is in a high rank. And so they respect him for this. Now, after this one battle, where Israel, under David's command, wins this great victory over the Philistines, the, the women of Israel line the streets and give an impromptu victory parade. Uh, and, they're giving, and they're declaring in their songs uh, the success that they've achieved. Verse 6, when the men were returning home, this is from this, this glorious battle, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. Imagine King Saul. He can kind of hear it off in the distance, and they're like, hey, the women came out to sell it for, for you. King Saul must be like, awesome, the ladies, they dig me. You know, I wonder what song, I hear they're singing a song, I wonder what it is. Is it, what a man, what a man, what a man, what a fine, mighty fine man, King Saul. Is that what they're singing? And he gets closer, and he hears the words to the song. As the women of Israel dance, they sing. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. What does Saul do in response at this moment? Here's what he could have done. I wonder if he did this. Did Saul be like a, a night where Kevin Durant scores 50 points and Steph Curry only scores 13, but Steph is like, dude, I threw him all the assists. We whooped up on the Lakers. That was an awesome victory. Way to go, KD. Did, did he, was he like that? Did he celebrate the, the assist he'd given to set David in this position? Was he, was he like a, a Tom Brady who throws five touchdowns in a game to, to Rob Gronkowski? And instead of being jealous that Gronk gets the MVP because he scored five touchdowns, be like, I threw those passes. That was a huge win for all of us. Is that how Saul was? How was he? Verse 8. On screen. Saul was very angry. Huh. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Anger... Is, is a secondary emotion, I think you know this. And whenever you find yourself angry, you need to ask yourself, like what's the deal going on behind that? Men who struggle with anger in the home, in relationships or at work, you, you always wanna ask, what's the deal behind anger? It's a secondary emotion. And here, anger is a secondary emotion for envy of King Saul toward David. And he allows this, this, this and from that time, he kept a close eye on David. He allows this base temptation of envy to control his emotions. He gives in to it controlling his actions, his career, through envious ill will toward David. And Saul increasingly became aware that David's popularity had supplanted his popularity in the esteem of the people. And instead of celebrating David's victories and his talent scout ability to put him there, he allowed envy to fill his heart instead. Envy makes us blind to our own gifts and good fortune. The envious person may have wonderful assets and abilities like Saul did. He had amazing things at his disposal, but all he or she can see are the gifts or blessings that we don't have, but another one does. 
displayed through a filter on Instagram. What another person has always seems larger, better, or more special. And that's the little hit of envy when it begins. Had, what if Saul had been the high-minded, spirit-of-God-filled man that he was when he was appointed king by prophet Samuel? Because in the Old Testament, we see these instances throughout. We don't understand it exactly, but the Spirit of God is given in special measure to a few appointed leaders to take God's story further and carry the ball until we get to Jesus and God's Spirit is given equally to all of his people. And so Saul had been given a high measure of God's Spirit, and yet he succumbed to this. And thus, we must be careful that we don't go, well, I mean, this Saul example is like extreme. I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit. I I would never give in to envy to that extent. Let us be humble in the face of this story and God's word this morning and say, oh, Lord, is it I? And where might envy be? Just just have a a crack open. The door is cracked open. And and where am I allowing it to, to potentially open wider? The example of Saul ruining his own life and that of others, this is getting ready to come, is why envy is one of those sins that's come to be called traditionally in the church the seven deadly sins. Envy only looks at what we do not have and it poisons what we do have. And this is exactly what happens to Saul. He ends up poisoning everything else that he has because of envy of what he doesn't. An old proverb says this, a person who is green with envy is ripe for trouble. Why is envy so deadly to your spiritual life and mine? Number one, envy tempts me to see the achievements of others as a threat. There once were two shopkeepers, a famous story goes. These two shopkeepers were bitter rivals in a small village. Their stores were directly across the street from each other, and they would spend each day keeping track of the other man's business. It was the same business. If one got a customer, he would smile over in triumph at his rival. At the end of the day, these two shopkeepers measured their success not by their net profits, but by whether or not they had made more money than the competitor across the street. One night, an angel appeared to one of these two shop owners and said, I will give you anything you asked, but whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. Would you be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? You can, but his life will be longer and healthier. Which is, what is your desire? The angel said. The shopkeeper frowned. He liked the idea of being rich, but hated the idea of his neighboring shopkeeper being even richer. He loved the idea of living a long and healthy life, but hated the idea of his competitor living longer. The shopkeeper thought for a moment, and then in conclusion said, Here is my request, strike me blind in one eye. Envy made Saul see the beautiful achievements of David as a threat to his authority and kingdom. Envy turns family, friends, or coworkers into your competition or fellow students or teammates. It makes you see them through the eyes of mistrust instead of through the eyes of love, which is the way of Jesus. Envy is the opposite of love. And when we give it root, it edges out. When it grows, it hedges out. It pushes out love for the other. Now, question, was David ever really a threat to King Saul and his throne? Absolutely not. 
This is a highly nuanced story with, with which many of you are familiar. And though David was destined to become the king, the story is super clear that David repeatedly refused to ever list his, lift his hand against King Saul and aspire to the throne as long as he was king because he knew God had anointed that man. David is a great study, by the way, if you have a horrible boss or if you serve under a terrible coach. David is a great study of how to be loyal and a man of integrity and love God even when you serve a terrible boss. Envy often makes us see schemes and conspiracies and plots against us that aren't really there. And Saul looked at the accomplishments in David's life, and he winced and worried about it. Saul could have and should have rejoiced in the achievements and successes of David's life. But instead, he allowed. We, we all have that moment of hit of envy, and he allowed it to grow, and he became green with it. Number two. Envy makes me suspicious of another and may influence me to plot their downfall. Or maybe just their downfall, a peg. And, and, and we're going to look at this and see, oh, man, again, I mean, I would never be tempted to act out envy the way that Saul was. And yet, have we been tempted to bring someone down a peg in some small way? Perhaps it's that little factoid we know about a person who we think is a little too high and mighty about their successes. And we insert that factoid into people who respect them at just the right moment to take them down a peg. This is envy. It makes us suspicious and may influence us to bring them down a peg. Verse 18, Saul is thinking, how do I bring David down a peg or how do I bring him down fully? Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, you have an opportunity to become the king's son-in-law. Wow. This is an example of using or hurting someone we love when under the influence of sin and temptation. This is how destructive sin can be. Do you think Saul thought of himself? He probably thought of himself like every one of us does who, who are a parent. Man, I'm, I'm a loving dad. I would never do anything to hurt my kids. Who, has, who doesn't think that or say that about themselves? And yet because of the influence of envy unaddressed in his life, he puts her in harm's way. Like the parent who of course loves their children, but, but once they've succumbed again to the temptation of having too many drinks and they're under the influence of the sin of drunkenness, Yes, that parent who loves their kid will get behind the wheel with their child in the car at great risk, perhaps even devastation. Those in the room or if you're worshiping with us online, hello, who are divorced and, and you're a parent, you know this temptation. You, you envy some of the time or the things that your ex may have with the kids or the kid's re, uh, view of your ex and it is tempting to say ugly things about your ex to the kids so that it takes their, the, there's a bit of a, they're taken down a peg in the eyes of the children and therefore you are lifted up. And we excuse it as, well, I'm just telling the truth about it. It's always and every time a grave sin to speak ugly about your ex or your, your grown child's ex to their children. It's the flowering of the sin of envy in everyday life in Lake Norman as one example. 
The scriptures tell us envy has a sinister progression to it. That envy, if not confessed, repented of, and dealt with by the power of the Spirit, leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to friction and strife. Strife leads to division. And division can lead to ugly words and even violent actions. And this is the progression in Saul's life. As one proverb says it, as rust corrupts iron, so envy corrupts a person. Number three, envy turns me into a hypocrite. Verse 22, then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Go ahead and become his son-in-law. Envy, by the way, is a sin that, that we almost never confess. It's one reason I think it's important we're talking about this so that we can learn to recognize it and say it. Very few people confess it, but many of us are guilty of it. Uh, as pa- in my role as pastor over the years uh, here in the Lake Norman area, people have conf- I It's always interesting when I meet with someone, uh, have an appointment on my calendar, and, and we've not spoken before, and I have no idea what it's about. Like, it, it could be, hey, what's up? What do you think about Tiger Woods? Or it might be something that gets real deep real fast. And, and as pastor, I've had the following sins confessed to me uh, as like I need to tell somebody over the years. Lying, lust, adultery, polygamy, pride, greed, murder, cocaine dealing, drug and alcohol addiction. This is all in Lake Norman. But no one has ever come to me as pastor to confess toward healing the sin of envy. It's insidious and it's, it, it it's, tries to remain invisible. And we address it today because without a vigilance over our heart for the gospel to cleanse us again when we have this impulse in us, it will hamper our life and hurt others drastically. And we want to honor God with our life. So in public, Saul honors David, but privately he can't stand him. I think we've all experienced this. Envy is Saul giving his daughter to David in marriage, but then sending David into battle, hoping his daughter becomes a grieving widow. Envy is congratulating your coworker for the promotion and salary raise she received, but then hinting to others in the office that she got it because she's attractive. Envy is giving a high five to a teammate for an outstanding play, but then complaining to other teammates, oh, he just got the, the ball on that one because he's the coach's favorite. Envy is hanging out with the other moms on the block or in the apartment complex around the pool and letting slip that one unflattering detail you happen to know about the mom who in the area who seems to have it all together. We're like Saul too often and hide behind the facade of well-wishing and congratulatory pats on the back while we sort of wish we had a dagger in that hand. We tell our colleagues, oh, Joe is so deserving of the promotion. Or we stand with everybody else and clap at the the year-end award ceremony at school, which are all coming up here soon. But when we get home sometimes, if we give in to this, when the door is closed and it's just us, the poison of envy can come out. And, And if we let it flower in our hearts, we secretly hope these people will stub their toes or lose their golden touch or be discovered for who we think they truly are. Because envy makes us see the achievement of others as a threat. This is why Proverbs 14.30 teaches us that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. 
Time to be sure that everyone's participating and engaging with God's word. Would, would, would you tell one of your neighbors out loud, hello, neighbor? They didn't hear you. Would you tell them, hello, neighbor? Say, hey, neighbor. A heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. You got to say it like that. Go ahead, tell them. Yes, there you And now, uh, 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 turn to another neighbor. Hey, neighbor. I want a heart of peace giving life to my body. This is who we wish to be, oh Lord. Number four, envy force me, tempts me to keep my eye on someone else, not on God. Did you notice verse nine? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Have you thought how ugly it is and how small it is, how trifling when we overfocus on another person in our envy? Honestly, that doesn't help me to think about that because then I'm, I'm even more ashamed that I'm playing around with envy because it's so small. Saul eyed David from that day forward. The, 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 the Hebrew verb tense here means an unbroken action. He never took his eyes off the of suspicion of David. It's the pain, he was always painfully and resentfully aware of, of what David was enjoying. Verse 10, ultimately, if we indulge this too far, it, it will birth itself in words or actions. Verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully, up, forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house. That is a trip right there. I need to go back and study this phrase. While David was playing the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Like, missed one time, you know what, I didn't mean that, it was just an accident, why don't you just stand right, right about there again and play some more music. Um, envy feels good to nurture in the moment. When we first feel it, it's like, a little, it's like a little pleasure hit to the amygdala in the brain. It is, it feels good for a moment, but it's as dangerous to, to, to tolerate it for a moment is as dangerous as smoking a cigar while pumping gas into your car. Something might go boom if you do that too long. Envy can be a powerful force in a person's life, and God calls us to resist the temptation to envy because the sin of envy offends God's holy nature, and also it's so hurtful to us. And Jesus wants so much better for you, for me, and for the people in our life. He has called us to live on his mission of love to everyone with whom we lock eyes, including the people we're tempted to envy. Here on Palm Sunday, I want you to notice something. Envy is really not a small thing. Envy is named in the scripture as the sin that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Look at Mark 15, verse 9. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of what? Envy, the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Chief priests, instead of working on their own house and their own stuff, are like, look at everybody following Jesus. And it was envy was their sin, the flowered into the sin of portraying Jesus. Envy forces us to keep our eye on our perceived competition 
when our eyes should be on the Lord. Number five, envy will blind me to the blessings and achievements of my own life. There's a well-known legend uh, from the fourth century. It tells the story of inexperienced demons who were having great difficulty in tempting a very holy man who lived as a hermit in prayer in the desert of Egypt. These demons lured this holy man with every type of temptation, but they could not entice him to sin. He always was victorious over their temptations. Frustrated, those demons returned to Satan, who became angered with the incompetence of his demons. So Satan decided to become personally involved. He told his demons, the reason you have failed is your methods are too crude for such a holy man as this. Sit back and watch a pro at work. With that, Satan approached the elderly holy man in his cave at prayer with great care and whispered softly in his ear, your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. Instantly, the holy man's face showed that Satan had been successful. A scowl formed on his face and his eyes tightened up. Envy had now gripped his soul. This is the stealth of the temptation of envy. Where does envy well up in us and why do we indulge it when it comes? I think part of it lies in our own insecurity of who we are and and our desire to play the game of one-upsmanship with those around us. Envy makes us compare ourselves and what we have with those around us and what they have. Envy tempts us to doubt God's provision for the circumstances of my life. Envy tempts me to, to doubt God's provision emotionally and spiritually for my identity as a secure child of God who has a future destiny of glory through the gospel. I doubt the provision of the gospel that that's enough when I envy. And those are the moments the evil one whispers in our ear, they don't deserve what they got, but you do. David rescued the nation of Israel from the Philistines. It was a time of national rejoicing, and Saul should have been David's head cheerleader. And yet he did not. And as you and I go through life, this is a real situation all the time. Chances are good that you or I have a, will have a brother or a sister or a cousin who will make more, or a friend who will make more money, have nicer cars, or own a bigger home, or have a relationship that you wish you had. When these situations develop, how will we respond? Well, as I go through life, here's our our real question to live with. Will I rejoice in friends' success or will I allow envy to suck me into bitterness? The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, love rejoices in our neighbor's good while envy grieves over it. This is the essential move of the heart or the soul when envy knocks on the door. Will I rejoice? Or will I grieve over this person's success? Because envy's remedy is a heart full of love, but we have to lead our own heart by actions of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 teaches us, love is patient and kind, it does not envy. Commenting on this verse, Francis Schaeffer, a 20th century writer, said, I am to love God enough to be contented. I am to love others enough not to envy. So how do we do this? Just two quick ways, a perspective and a practice. The perspective is to cultivate an eternal perspective. There are so many things in life that if you cultivate the perspective, that in the end what will matter is you're standing before God through faith in Jesus for all eternity. That combats a lot of temptation in our life. 
And, and in just a moment, we're going to reset our hearts on an eternal perspective and do some heart work in communion in our worship. But before we get to the heart work at the table, I want to do some hands and feet work of practices of love. There's a perspective that's eternal, but then there's the practices of love that will cast out envy. And it's simply rejoicing in another's good fortune. We, hey, neighbor, said that first neighbor. We say, neighbor, I will rejoice at others' good fortune. How do I do this? It's very, very simple. Number one, practices of love that cast out envy. In the moment of the feeling, we're never going to be immune to the feeling of envy. It will always come, always, this side of heaven. In that moment, what will I do? Will I nurture it? Will I cultivate it because it feels good? Or will I take an action of love? One, write a letter of congratulations. You're at work. This might happen tomorrow. Please email me if it does. You're at work, and they announce that the young punk in the office got the promotion. You believe you deserve it, and you're envious. There's other people with 30 years of experience who were passed over. What do you do in that moment? Because you, you can't help but feel it. I, you cannot help but feel it. What do you do? Do you allow envy to live, and you go and join the little me, 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 me around the coffee pot? Or will you go to that person and choose the act of love? This is what the soul surrendered to Jesus does. Choose the act of love and say, congratulations. Here's what you're really good at around here. I'm, 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 I'm proud for you. Don't lie and say I'm happy for you if you're not yet. And that's how you break the grip of envy in your life. When celebration becomes the habit, we act our way into this. We groove a habit of celebration. And then envy will not any longer reside in you or conquer you. You become free of its grip. You're like, I'm not going to allow these dangerous emotions to ruin my life the way it did King Saul. I'm going to say no to creating rivals of innocent people. Protect my heart by celebrating other success. Number two, same, different way to do the same thing. Make a call. Compliment the person for their accomplishment. When I was a high school sophomore, I became famous for about two days because as a sophomore, I won the conference championship in cross-country running. When I say I became famous, that means with three people, okay? Uh, it was cross-country. And I beat this senior uh, from Winston-Salem Reynolds High School who had won the conference championship for three years running. And I beat him as a sophomore. And he came over to our team huddle afterward, pulled me aside, and said, man, you have great talent and potential. Keep it up. I'm happy for you. What? I had just supplanted him. I learned later that that, that, that guy, as a young man, uh, he was blind in one eye and 90% deaf. And he lived as an example of being grateful for what he had, and he did not worry about he could celebrate anything anyone else had. Number three, tell them you're proud of them and proud to know them. Hey, the guy who brags all the time, let's go back to the boat. Dude just went to the boat store. He's now pulled up in your cul-de-sac, and he's got the boat out in the, out in the driveway. It's gleaming. And he washes it for four hours just waiting for somebody to come out and be like, whoa, you're a man, man. Right? What, what do you do in that moment? Or your, I don't know what your equivalent is. Think of your equivalent. What is that? In that moment, will you let it flower and go, he's, he's a bad dad. He's not even a good husband. I, I bet he did it. Or do you go over there, the act of love grooves the habit by celebratory actions and words. Hey, man, whoa, wow, that's impressive. Tell me about your boat. And then you stand there and while he bores you to tears, talking about the horsepower and the little cup holders. You know, 
Oh man, that's great for you. That's how you, you, you loosen envy's grip on the heart and you gain and you act out the heart of love that Jesus gave you when you put your faith in him and he's called you to live on mission toward that obnoxious man too. Lastly, be, be the first in line to shake their hand, number four, or be the first up off your seat to applaud them, number five. And let's finish here and move to communion. M- maybe you're hurting in life. Maybe you're hurting in life today. We all hurt in life. Maybe you're one of the people who uh, more than your fair share of hurt has come to you. I grieve over that, by the way. I argue with God about that on your behalf as pastor. I just want you to know. I don't get it. But maybe you're that person. And then you see somebody else succeed another time who gets more than their fair share of that. It's really tempting to let envy take a hold and take you down, even in your hurt and grief. And it's a way of of stiff-arming the Holy Spirit, being your comfort. And envy can become a, a cruel comfort in your heart. Instead, can you say, oh, Lord, I'm tempted to envy right now. Give me the action of celebrating their accomplishment and you be the one to shake their hand, to be up off your seat, to applaud them. That will be to the glory of God. It is for your good because it keeps your heart free to love and it will be good for that person. Let's pray, come to the table. Heavenly Father, you're so good. We now examine ourselves the way your word tells us to do before we come to communion. Some of us examine ourselves and realize I'm not yet a Christian. I've not put my faith in Jesus. Friend, if that's you, you can, you can kind of remain where you are and just ask God to reveal himself to you. Or you can come and take the bread and cup as your first act of faith in Jesus, becoming a Christian. Just tell, ask him for forgiveness of your sins. Tell him you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All the rest of us, Let's examine ourselves on our way to the table. Lord, what are the ways in which through envy, I'm really telling you that you owe me more than the ways you're currently providing, that you owe me more than the gospel, salvation and eternal life. What are the ways I'm taking for granted your gifts and benefits to me? I confess that envy and I ask you to put on the habits of celebrating others in love. In Jesus' name, amen.